book of Psalms to Psalm 73. For our second scripture reading this morning, we're going to be reading the entirety of Psalm 73, but the sermon is really going to focus just on two verses toward the end, verses 25 and 26. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, that second scripture reading is on page 574, Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. And therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of our God. Please be seated. And let us seek his illumination on his word now. Let us pray. Our God, we are so thankful to you for the promises of the gospel, not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old. We thank you for all of your saving grace, your power to change us. We thank you that you work that saving grace by the power of your spirit through the word, especially 
when it's read and when it's proclaimed. Our God, believing that, we have stood at attention while your word was read. We ask now, believing that, that we would sit with illumination, that your spirit would fill us. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things. Transform us from the inside out. We can't do this to ourselves, but we believe you can do this, and we believe you have promised to do this by the power of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we ask for that change in Jesus' name. Amen. If all of you here sitting today could, could change your life in one specific way, if you could change anything about your life, what would it be? What would you choose? Some of you have heard that question before because it's a question that I like to incorporate in our pastoral visitations. When we, the pastor and elders, pastors and elders, come to visit you in your homes, one of the things we do is we ask you questions about your life. How's it going? How's your soul? How's your marriage? How's your family? One of the questions that I like to ask, usually toward the end, is that question. If you could change anything about your life right now, what would it be? And the reason I like to ask that question is it often opens a window into your heart. Maybe, maybe a window that, you know, you weren't really, weren't really, you were a little hesitant to open. But given the right prompt, you see more about yourself than you even perhaps you realized previously. Psalm 73 the psalm that we just read, is a window into the heart of Asaph, the psalmist. It's, it's a rich psalm. It's beautiful. It has a lot of what we would today call authenticity, does it not? Think about it. He, he's really honest about the tension that he experiences as a believer as he sees how the wicked, those who hate God, are prosperous in this life. And he he's, goes into detail about his frustrations, verses 4 through 12, he says, Lord, this, this, is what makes, this is what makes it so hard for me. And he even talks in verses 13 through 15 about how he himself was tempted. Was tempted, he says, if I had spoken this way, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. A very serious temptation. And he lays it all out. He's very honest. And then he reaches a hinge point there in verses 16 and 17, where he takes the whole situation and he reflects on it, he reframes it in the light of two things, God's eternity and God's promises. And as he does, and as he exercises his faith in that way, things change. He comes to make a stirring confession, verses 21 and 22, and he is then deeply captivated by the goodness and by the promises of God. He gets a fresh vision, as it were, of God's grace. And so it's a window into Asaph's heart, But it's also, my friends, it's also a guided tour of every pastor's desire for every one of you. This is what Pastor Patton and I and the other elders, this is what we want for all of us. We want us to be living the Christian life in honesty before the face of God. We want you to be honest to God about the things that are frustrating for you. And we want you, having been honest then, to take all those things that are hard for you and we want you to set them in the light of God's eternity and His promises and in so doing, come to a deeper appreciation, not only of our own sinfulness, but also of the great, deep, rich goodness of God. And so that by the end of every day of your spiritual life, you come away desiring Jesus more than ever 
before. This has been the effort that I have made as one of your pastors. I know this is also Pastor Patton's perpetual effort, but over the last 3.75 years that I have served as one of your pastors, that's exactly, I did the math this morning, 1,360 days since my installation here. So over 1,360 days, this is what I have strive, striven by God's grace to see among you. And I wonder, to what extent has it succeeded? Have we, as a body, have we landed where Asaph lands by the end of this psalm? Do we desire Jesus more than anything else? Probably, if we're honest, the answer is what? Sometimes. Sometimes, but not always. Sometimes we sense His goodness, and other times the world is too much with us. Well, as we come to a point in our life where we move on, I'm moving on to a new call. This congregation will continue to move on under Pastor Patton and the elders and in time to come, another second pastor. How can we each go deeper into the love and desire for Christ? And I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that in reflecting particularly on Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, this text unfolds for us, especially as we read it through the lens of the New Testament, three reasons that we should desire Jesus more than anything else in the whole universe. And those three reasons are very simple. They're on your outlines, kids, and we will go through these one at a time. I'm going to try to take a special care not to skip any one of them since this is my last sermon as one of your pastors. Sometimes I miss one. And more, one or more of you are good enough to come up and say, you missed number eight, you missed number six. I'm going to try not to miss any today. But if I do, you tell me, all right? I won't mind. But those three reasons why we should desire Jesus more than anything else are, number one, only Jesus can really fill us. Number two, only Jesus can truly fix us. And number three, only Jesus can deeply revive us. Fill us, fix us, revive us. This is why we should desire Jesus more than anything. And let's start with the first one. Only Jesus can fill us. A very important piece of understanding what you are as a human being, of understanding what it is to live as a human being in this world, number one on your outlines, right in this text, a key to understanding human nature is that we are, we are created for eternity. Look at verse 25. He says, psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? That word, heaven, it's such a common word. It's such a common idea. Most, most people in the world, even if they're not believers, have some idea, however vague, however confused, some desire for a place like heaven. They might even use the same word for it. But have you ever asked yourself, where, where did the human race get that idea? Why is it so widespread? Why is it so deep-set in us? Because, friends, the Bible tells us it's like conscience. It's been hardwired. Just like God put His law in our hearts, that's what our conscience is. So the book of Ecclesiastes says God has set eternity in our hearts. And people can deny this, and I'm sure you know people who would deny this, who would say, no, there's no heaven, there's no God. I'm sure you've, you've seen some of that out in the world today. But even those who say that don't really believe it. You know why? Because when suffering comes and when death comes, we are still deeply frustrated. There is a sense deeper than, any, the, deeper than even the most skeptical denials. There is a sense 
that death is wrong, that death shouldn't happen to people. And we have, this, we have this desire that you cannot eradicate to live beyond death. And the Bible is good enough to tell us that is because we are created for eternity. And when you understand that, it gives great explanatory power for a lot of deep things in human life. Two of the things, one of the things that that explains, number two on your outlines, kids, is it explains our disappointments, but it's also a promise. It explains our disappointments and, or also, it's a promise. Look at the second part of verse 25. First part says, whom have I in heaven but you? But then he goes on to say, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That idea of desire is a very key word there, desire. Have you ever wondered why our desires are so often disappointed? How many of you have ever experienced disappointed desire? Even in a Presbyterian church, a couple hands went up. Good for you. C.S. Lewis reflects on this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, the longings that first arise in us when we first fall in love, or we want to go, we we learn about a foreign country, or we, we take up some new hobby, that we are filled with this desire And we want to pursue this thing, this person, this job, this place. And then even when we get it, we find that the desire isn't quite filled up. He says the the desire that you have when you first get interested in something never compares with the actual desire when it arrives. Because there is a deep, there's a depth to that desire that just can't be filled up, even by the best things in this life. And some of you have heard this line. Lewis goes on in that same context to say, why is that? And he says, if I find in myself a desire no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that the pleasures that we experience now were never meant to fill us the whole way up. They were meant to be pointers to the deeper pleasures that come from the source of all pleasure, who is God himself. In other words... Let's make it even simpler. Because you were made for eternity, each and every one of you, myself included, because we were made for eternity, our capacity for joy or misery is bottomless. And that means even the fullest life in this world, which is finite and limited, can't fill it up. If you put the whole world into a bottomless heart, how how much space will be left? Bottomless amount, right? One of the reasons why Jesus talks about gaining the world and losing your soul. You can gain the world and still lose your soul because the world is not big enough to fill your soul. The world itself cannot fill the bottomless capacity because you were made for eternity. And you see this throughout history. You know, the conquerors, history's winners, they're never satisfied. Napoleon conquers all of Europe and then still tries to march into Russia. Celebrities are frequently miserable. You see it on the tabloids, even if you're trying to avoid them. They're right there at the grocery store. The world is not enough for a heart that was made for eternity. That's why we feel so disappointed in this life so often. But that disappointment also points to the promise that you were made for eternity and that there is one who can fill you. But it's nothing in this world It is the eternal God. Doesn't that make sense? Only an eternal God could fill a bottomless soul to capacity. 
And so when the psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He's not saying he's never struggled. Of course, the whole psalm is about his struggle. He's saying, this is just the honest truth about who we are. I was made for eternity. Only the eternal God can fill me. And that gives us then perspective, number three on your outlines, kids, that the joys of life are not bad. They are, in fact, life's joys are heaven's windows. They are windows into the goodness of God. But Jesus is the only door into that goodness. Another place in Lewis's writings, he says, the pleasures we experience in this world, they're like, they're like patches of God light in the woods of our experience. Any of you ever been in the woods like in spring, summer, or fall, and you see light coming down through the trees? He says that all the good things you enjoy in this life are like that. They are like patches of light coming into the woods, pointing you back to God, pointing you back to the only one who can fill you. And so when, when Asaph talks here in verses 4 and 5 about some of the things that he envied the wicked for, being healthy, being safe. And by the way, in the ancient world, being fat was a measure of prosperity and comfort and safety. Um, and that may seem a little weird to you today here in our society, but that's how it was. Their comfort, their safety, they're not in trouble as others are, verse 5. He's not saying that those things are intrinsically bad. In fact, they are windows into heaven. Yet he came to realize over the course of the psalm that without God, and if not framed in right, right position to a love of God, they are simply illusions before a terrible ruin. That's what he's talking about in verses 18 through 20. You set them in slippery places. It's like this. Again, let's make it very simple. If you live even, even a relatively moral and upright life in this world, but don't acknowledge God as your creator and your, your God, your Savior, you are like Goldilocks. How many of you remember the story Goldilocks and the Three Bears? Right? Goldilocks go, breaks into the bear's house and there's all this good stuff. And so she just helps herself. They got, they got porridge, they got beds, they got chairs. Why not? And then, of course, in the story, the bear comes home and guess what? Ah! In the story, Goldilocks escapes. But living in this world and enjoying all of God's good things without acknowledging God at your center, that's the great sin. And unlike in Goldilocks, no human being will escape who lives that way. But friends, the gospel says you don't have to escape. You don't have to sneak around on God's premises. You live in this world as a creature of God. Jesus came into the world to put you in a right relationship with Him. We don't have to sneak around. We don't have to just be peering in the windows or stealing time on God's goodness. Jesus is the door to unending joy. He said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. He is the door to where the pleasures are born. Psalm 16, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you believe that Jesus is the door to where pleasures are born, why would you not want more and more and more of Jesus? How could anything else in this world compare to the one who can give you pleasures forevermore? Should we not desire Jesus more than anything, my friends? This is the first reason. Only Jesus can truly fill our desires. Only He is bottomless in His goodness. Only He can fill your hearts that were made for eternity. But this first reason then brings us into the second reason, especially if we reflect upon our desires now, because if we're honest about our desires now, one of the things we'll be 
understanding about ourselves is that our desires in this world and in this stage of our lives are not always clean, are not always pure. They are infected with sin and with self-centeredness. They are disordered. And that's why we need Jesus all the more, because only Jesus can fix us. Number four, kids, on your outlines, the essence of sin is self-centered, disordered desires. The psalmist says, Asaph says in verse 3, that he was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. What is envy? Envy is a discontented desire. Not necessarily for bad things, but for good things in the wrong way. Look at the second half of verse 25. It's almost like if you invert this, you get a picture of what envy is and what sin is. He says, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He says that after reflecting. But when he was envious, there was something on earth that he desired more than God. And that's what sin is. You can even turn a good thing into a God thing. You can even have a desire for a good thing that becomes distorted. Your priorities get all shifted around. Even things like family, even things like health, and all the other things that we enjoy, sports, food, recreation, relationships, they can become more important to you than God. You can desire them more than the Lord, and that is the essence of sin. Satan does, in other words, Satan does not have to trick you into worshiping him to lead you to hell. He can trick you into worshiping sports. He can trick you into worshiping success. He can trick you into worshiping relationships. He can trick you into worshiping stability, comfort. Even the best things can become disordered in our desires. The essence of sin is a self-centered disorder desire. And it not only dishonors God, it disfigures you. And that's number five, kids. In disordering our affections, sin distorts our very humanity. Look at the confession he makes in verses 21 and 22. He says, when my soul was embittered When I was pricked in heart, let's just pause right there. The root word here, the Hebrew root word behind the word embittered, it's related to to what yeast does when you put yeast in dough. What does yeast do when you put it into dough? It starts to bubble, starts to change the shape. And when you're making bread, that's a good thing, right? You want it to kind of get puffed up, and you don't want it to look like a little lump of dough. You want it to be distorted into a loaf of bread. But what he's saying is when, when, when envy gets into our hearts, when disordered desires are in control, it distends, it distorts, it, it reshapes your heart, it disfigures your heart, the heart of who you are. And you become, as he says in verse 22 of himself, you become like a brute. You become ignorant. And instead of being a man or a woman who bears the image of God, you are, as he says, like a beast toward our God. In other words, you're not just committing a sin against God, you're committing a crime against your own humanity. That's what sin does. That's what disordered desires do. They're not just idolatry. They are a crime against humanity. And they're the root of all the misery in this world. Think about it. And it's interesting that that even in the world today, even as far gone as our world has gone, if you ask somebody, is it really good for somebody to be really selfish? Nobody's going to say yes. But when you talk about what is the solution for selfishness, they've got all these different ideas, and the problem is they never work. Why not? Because they're still based on human effort. They're still based on us trying to fix ourselves. And the problem is selfishness isn't just in the fruit. It's in the root. 
And so a selfish tree can never bear unselfish fruit. What you need is a new root. And that is why we should desire Jesus all the more. Number six, because Jesus promises us not just a new record. Jesus promises us a new spirit. Friends, as good as forgiveness and acceptance are, these benefits of the gospel, being forgiven, being accepted by God, those are wonderful gifts. But as good as they are, the gospel promises us even more. It promises us not just a new record, forgiveness and acceptance. It promises us a new spirit, a new heart, a new root for all our desires. Think about it. It's, again, it's right here in the text. What was it that enabled Asaph to draw back from the brink of betraying God? It says in the very first verse, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God had given this man a new heart. And look at verse 26. It's the other bookend here. He says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. God was upholding him. God had, we would say theologically, regenerated him. And he didn't get that new heart from himself. He got it from the Lord. That doesn't mean he was perfect. He says, I envied. But it does mean that by the power of God working in him, he was given the wisdom to hold his mouth shut rather than speak. He was given the perspective to see what really happens when you set all these things in the light of eternity. And he was given the vision of the goodness of God that expelled all that wrong desire. And that new heart, that pure heart, that new spirit is the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And the Spirit of Jesus comes into our lives to reorder our desires. It is that new root that we need. It was the assurance of pardon, the promise of the gospel today. Jesus died for all. Why? Not just so that they could be forgiven, but so that those who lived for themselves should no longer live for themselves, but for Him. He's talking about the reordering of our desires from the inside out. And all the details then come out in Paul's letter to Galatians. He talks about the Spirit fighting against the flesh and the flesh fighting against the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the life of Jesus being grown in you by the power of the Spirit of Jesus. In other words, Jesus can actually make your desires clean. How many of us wish that our desires could be purified? That there would be no more sin even in the things we want? That's part of what Christ promises and only Jesus can do it. And that's why we need to desire him more than anything else. Now, we get to this point. Some of you are probably saying, I know I'm saying this. I was saying this as I was thinking about the sermon this week. I know. I know I should desire Jesus more. But what happens when I don't? Where do I go when I don't? And this is why we read that first reading from John chapter 6. When things got hard for the disciples of Jesus, having to do with the discussion of Jesus being the bread of life, some decided to walk away. Jesus turned to the disciples, the twelve, and said, Are you going to leave? And what did they say? Lord, where else will we go? You're our only hope. You have the words of life. The same is true here, my friends. When we know that we should desire the Lord more, and we know that we don't desire him as much as we should, where do we go? We go to Jesus. Because only Jesus can revive us. Number seven, kids, on your outlines. The difficulty that we experience in dissolving Jesus can be dissolved, can be dealt with. But it's not, it doesn't happen by concealing it. 
Difficulties don't dissolve by concealment, but by confession. Think about it. The very existence of this psalm. What does it show us? What is it? It is a monument to the power of confession to draw us nearer to God. Not by concealing these inward struggles, but by pouring them out in prayer before the face of God. It is the whole psalm, the whole lesson of the whole psalm is take your struggle to desire God to the God you wish you desired. Friends, isn't this what myself and Pastor Patton have said to you over and over in so many different ways over these last almost four years? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness even our disordered desires. So if you struggle to believe any point of the gospel, what should be your prayer? Mark chapter 9, verse 24. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Heal my unbelief. What should be your prayer here? Lord, I desire to desire you. Help my lack of desire. Heal my lack of desire. Because revival begins, number eight, kids. Revival begins... Not by trying harder, but by looking closer. By looking closer. Hudson Taylor, one of my one of my heroes, humanly speaking, went through a great struggle during his ministry as part of the China Inland Mission. He was working so hard for God, but he often struggled to feel refreshed in God. He wanted his strength, he wanted his faith to be strengthened, but he just didn't know how to get there. And then finally, a friend of his wrote a letter to him that that changed his life. And in reflecting on that letter, Taylor wrote this. He said, how to get faith strengthened? Not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. In other words, by looking at Jesus first. Think about it. If you want to grow, some some of you kids are small right now. How many of you kids who are small, you want to get bigger, you want to grow up? How many of you adults want to grow up? Yeah, more hands. Thank you. If you're, if you're small, if you're weak, and you want to grow, what do you do? Do you just say, okay, grow? It doesn't work. If you want to grow, you have to eat and you have to exercise. It's the same principle when it comes to your soul. If you want to grow your faith, if you want to grow your desires, you have to first feast them on the promises and reality of Jesus and then exercise that faith, believing those promises, living on the basis of those promises. You can't just say, I want to grow. You have to feast. You have to look closer. You look closer at the promises. And that's what changes us. That's what changed Asaph. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. He's in the mire of this frustration But when I thought how to understand this verse 6, it seemed to me a wearisome task. How many of you ever felt weary in following Jesus? Hudson Taylor did. I'm sure you all have. Until what? Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until he looked in faith on the worship and the promises of God. Then I discerned their end. Before we end today, I want us to take a close look together. Let's practice this, verses 25 and 26. If we look really close at these words, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If we look at these through the lens of the gospel, if we look closely, what do we see? 
we see the best news that's ever been proclaimed in the whole universe, and that is this, that Jesus desired nothing on earth more than you and me. Verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 73, my friends, are not first and foremost a description of your heart for Jesus. They are first and foremost a description of Jesus' heart for you. You might say, well, didn't, Jesus, didn't, the, didn't the thing that Jesus want most, wasn't that to glorify his Father? Indeed. But John 6, verses 35 through 40, he said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, which was what? To save all that he had given me. And so it is not wrong. It is not incompatible. In fact, it is sweetly compliant with the glory of God to say that Jesus desired nothing on earth more than you and me. Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world for your sake and for my sake. He said no. Satan tried to get him toward the end through the voice of all the scoffers at the cross to come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. But he hung there. He stayed for you and for me. God himself would rather take holes in his hands than leave even a single hole in your heart. God himself was was willing to have his heart pierced by a spear so that he could overflow someday every hole in your heart and your life. Jesus was the one who more than anybody in the history of the world could say with honesty to the Father, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on I desire on earth more than you. And yet, loving God so much, he was willing for your sake and for mine at that horrible moment on the cross to have even that sense of God's smile taken away when he cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, Jesus, would rather lose that sense of God's smile than lose even one of you here today. That is what you see when you look closely at these words. The gospel from these words is that even if these words, verses 25 and 26, even if they don't yet describe our hearts for Christ, they already describe his heart for us. And they carry then with them a promise. And this is the last thing, kids. Our desire for Jesus Desire for Jesus will deepen in us as we pour our hearts into the desire of Jesus for us. Look closer. Look deeper. To whom shall we go, Jesus? Only you have the words of eternal life. And so you put your heart in his hands. Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. Make me, by your spirit, one who desires you more than anything. Amen. Let us ask him to do that for all of us now. Oh Lord, we confess that we do not desire you as we should, but we also confess that we desire to desire you more. And so Lord, forgive our lack of desire for you and create in us a deeper desire for you. Captivate us, Lord. Help us to look closely into how much you loved us and then create in us an echo, a responsive love for you. Fill us to the full, Lord, like a river channel being filled. But as you fill us, dig the channel deeper. 
so that we may desire Christ more day by day. Our Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.